tonight, we're going to be teaching on Ephesians 4, and so I don't know how many of you, I'm try, trying to remember just by looking at the crowd, would have been in the Ephesians class for the last three weeks, um, but if you were not in it, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. In the last three weeks, we, we taught on the uh, previous three chapters, and tonight, we're on Ephesians chapter 4. And so, the cool thing about Ephesians is it's six chapters long, and there's some nice symmetry in the book of Paul's train of thought. Uh, chapters one through three is one train of thought where he's laying out God's, uh, you know, glorious plan of salvation. Um, a lot of theology is in there. And then chapters four through six talk about the implications of that theology for our lives. So tonight, could, could we turn me down just a little bit, just a little bit, please? Uh, so tonight, really all I want to do is, is speak on chapter 4, but I also kind of want to set the tone for the chapters in, in the coming weeks, because um, I actually think that's kind of what Paul does uh, as he introduces his, his train of thought here in chapter 4. Um, but before we do that, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, uh, Lord, it's so good to be here with you, Lord, to be here um, in the middle of the week uh, or just past the middle of the week, God, on a Thursday. And, you know, we could be anywhere other than where we are right now, God, but we, we've chosen to, to be here, Lord. And it's, um, it's so good, Lord, just to be with you and just to have any excuse to just spend some time just kind of letting your word wash us, Lord, and... Um, Man, we, we, we need it, Lord. And so um, I pray for myself, Lord, that you would just speak through me, Lord, and um, glorify yourself through the things we discussed tonight, and that you'd be with everyone here listening and everyone who will come, God, and that you will um, just give us, give us humility, God, and um, just glorify yourself in everything that we, we speak about tonight, Lord. We love you and we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, I have no slides for you tonight, so it's just going to be me and you. So I, I hope that, I know different people have different, different learning, you know, um, what do you call it, learning styles, I guess you would say. But, um, but I hope that, you know, we'll at least be able to, to connect and, and that I'll be clear and concise. So Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You know, I've heard it said before, when reading the Bible, we must understand what the therefore is there for. Pretty clever, right? I didn't come up with it, but um, here and here, Paul in his therefore, he's referring back to chapters one through three, in which he's, he's already taken time to lay out the glorious nature of God's plan of salvation. This is the calling he refers to here in verse one. And here, here's a point that I want to make for us right from the start tonight. And I, I think it's the same point that, that Paul's making to the Ephesians. According to Paul, there is something about the Christian calling 
that should compel us towards a certain kind of character. Being a certain kind of person. And it's important to say this is different from do or do not religion, right? You know, for, for instance, you think about the Jews, right? And you look in the Old Testament, they have a, a, a rich library of laws and ordinances and, and um, teachings, commands from God on how to be moral, right? But Jesus, when he came, he said things like, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And then he would speak about the matters of the heart. And I, I think a, a good question for us here is in relation to, to character and calling, is that how we understand what it means to be a Christian? Is that how we understand what it means to be saved, to be a part of that calling that Paul laid out? in the first three chapters. Is salvation just avoiding destruction? Is salvation simply going somewhere good when we die? Or, as I've heard it referred to before, fire insurance. Is that all that God has called us to? Paul says no. It's more than that. And you know, really all I want to do for us tonight is shine a spotlight on the kind of people that Jesus has called us to be. And using that very same light, in the process, I want to expose the way that Satan would keep us from being that, the, the kind of people Jesus would have us be. Another way of putting that is I want to examine what Paul says here in chapter 4 about God's design for Christian maturity and Satan's strategy against it. So first, let's let Paul show us how our calling actually does relate to character. And following Paul's therefore, we can just go back to, to chapter 3 in verse 14. Re read with me here in uh, verse, verse 14 of chapter 3. Paul writes, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height in depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want you to pay attention to the wording Paul uses here in this, this passage. He says things like, God's Spirit, your inner being, dwell in your hearts, comprehend, rooted and grounded in love, know the love of Christ, filled with the fullness of God. All these things that Paul just spoke about cannot be observed physically. They're matters of the spirit. They're matters of the heart, the, the inner person. And the heart and the spirit of a person is where their observable physical actions come from. 
you know, this, this is consistently the, the position of the Scriptures. You can go all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even Jesus spoke about this often, right? He, he said things like, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then Proverbs 4.23, one of my favorite passages, it says, above all else, guard your what? Heart. Because everything you do flows from it. You see, the the Lord who created us knows this. And since the fall, since the garden, right, he's made it his mission to reclaim the thing that strayed from him first, our hearts, the human heart. If we're going to understand Paul's train of thought here in chapter 4, we must start by understanding this. The Christian calling is the calling to be with Christ, to be like Christ. That's the calling, period. To be with Jesus so he can make us like himself. God wants to transform our character. That's what's at the root of the calling. That's where all of our doings will flow from is the character that he creates in us, being a new creation. But that being said, let's talk a little bit about what character is and maybe give us a helpful definition. And really, very simply, character is what you do without having to think about it. It's the things in you that are ready to go, as it were, right? Doesn't need any necessary training, whatever, it just, it just happens, right? And you know what's, what's interesting? You know, sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, and, and maybe even we do it ourselves, Right? Sometimes you hear people, um, maybe they've acted out in anger or they've said something that they regret or some sort of behavior that they regret, right? And we'll hear people say things like, I'm so sorry, that was so out of my character. But it wasn't, was it? It was actually in their character. It's, it's actually just different from the character they wish they had right? And that's what's incredible. That's what's so incredible about about everything that that Paul lays out in chapters 1 through 3. And if you haven't been in the previous classes, definitely go back and read it. But he talks about being made into something new by God's power, right? We need that because the character we had before, it's been formed by the world. And even as we become Christians, even as we are created new, there's still a process of growing into the Christ-likeness God would have for us. You know, we, we've all at some point in our lives been formed by a world away from the life that God offers us. And even after becoming Christians, that world, it's still trying to form us every day we wake up, right? You know, if you, if you look back in, in chapter 2, Paul's already covered this a little bit, right? And and Richard did an awesome job of, of, of speaking to that a couple weeks ago. Uh, definitely, I think we're going to have that recorded. Check, check that out. Uh, you know, don't, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what we're doing. Definitely check that out. But in chapter 2, Paul brings attention to the distinction that there's supposed to be between the way of the world and the way of Christ. The world that we used to belong to. The spirit that used to work in us. The difference between being dead in sin 
and made alive in Christ. The Christian calling is the calling to be with Christ, to be like Christ, no matter what the cost is. You know, Paul himself here in the first, uh, the first verse, he brings attention to his current circumstances. He's imprisoned because of the kind of life that his calling in Christ had, had compelled him towards. And he kind of he throws in here like, oh, like a prisoner for the Lord. He, it, it's like a not-so-subtle reminder that the calling of Christ is costly. Yeah. It costs us something. Here in Paul's day, it's an unjust criminal confinement and eventually a condemnation to death. Now today, thankfully, at least in the western part of the world, we don't experience that kind of persecution for our faith. But there is still a cost that stands the test of time. It stood in the day of the Ephesians and it stands for us today in South Florida. The cost has always been the content of our character. That's always been the cost. That's always what's been expected of us. Who we are, who we become, our sense of ourselves. You know, the, um, the great 20th century theologian and, and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has this quote that I want to share with you. He says, when Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Whew. Man, when, when's the last time that we woke up in the morning and walked throughout our day with that kind of mentality? How can I die for Christ today? It's challenging, isn't it? And you know what? It's, it's even more challenging when we realize that Bonhoeffer was just paraphrasing Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny his self and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would uh, save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. By the wisdom of the world, that word from Jesus is senseless. It makes no sense. It's counterintuitive to the world's conventional wisdom. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazi regime because of the way his calling compelled him to live. The character it produced in him to live a certain way. He wasn't all talk, are we? You know, I, I wonder, in a world where we no longer face death, torture, or imprisonment for our faith, has the cost of following Jesus left our Christianity? Do we have a version of Christianity where the cost, especially as it pertains to our character, is no longer there anymore? Is character still central to the way we understand our calling? 
Let's ask ourselves this. If we've said Jesus is Lord, has there been a steady development of character in our life? Christ-like character. Well, how can we answer that question? Let's keep reading with Paul here in uh, verse 2. He says here, a life worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You know, in this verse, Paul gives us some helpful parameters, some useful metrics for answering that question I just asked us. In our walk, over time, have we become more humble people? Have we become more gentle, patient, slower to take offense, quicker to forgive? Is it easier and more natural for us to love? Is oneness more and more important to us than the things that could divide us from others? How's everybody doing? Y'all doing okay? Okay. You know, we're, we're just getting started tonight. And, and, and I, I, I want to stop right here and, and make a quick disclaimer. I'm not talking about perfection. At least not the way the world thinks of it, right? I'm simply talking about fruit. Fruits of the Spirit. Jesus himself, he said, you'll recognize a tree by its fruit. You know, there's, there's, there's no uh, shaming or, or holier-than-thou energy coming from me up here. I, I, at least I hope not. I just know that knowing myself and what I do know of human nature, sometimes we could really use a little bit of sobriety in our spirituality. You know what I'm saying? Like to, to throw off our assumptions and ask ourselves, how am I really doing? Am I really living like I value the calling I've received, right? Which brings me to my next thought. What is foundational to Christian maturity? What's, what's the sort of posture that we need to even be in the right starting place for Jesus to work with us? And to answer that, I need to go back and place a little bit of emphasis on the very first thing that Paul lists here, humility. This is important because I think humility is foundational to our faith, yet maybe the most forgotten. <laughs> it's, it's the starting place, though. It's the starting posture from which Christ-like character can come. It's the source. I want to read a, uh, a quick little quote here from, from Andrew Murray, who wrote a great book on, on humility, and I definitely... Um, encourage you guys to, to pick it up. But he, he says this, humility is not so much a virtue in itself as it is the root of all the others. Or another way of putting that is humility is the soil in which every other virtue can grow. And I like that. That made a lot of sense to me when I first read it. Humility is the soil in which Christian character can grow. 
But once again, why? Why do I say that? Well, I think very simply, when you think about the garden, you think about the fall, I think humility is what was lost in humanity from that. Right? After all, what, what sin do you know of that does, that does not have its roots in pride somehow? You know, like, like, like a, a, a higher sense of ourselves, an improper sense of ourselves. And, and, and this, what I, what I want to give to you real quick is, is perhaps what would be a, a helpful working definition of humility in relation to that. I think that simply humility is the right regard for God and therefore others. Humility is the right regard for God and therefore others. When we rightly esteem God, we will rightly esteem ourselves and others. And, you know, this is one of the things that if we look out into the world, I'm sure all of us have noticed it, that the world gets very backwards in desiring to raise self-esteem and mental health, which if we're honest, a lot of the world causes, (laughs) right? Um, But in a desire to raise that, the only thing the world can do is point you back towards yourself. What you feel is right. What you desire. And this is a deceptive idea from Satan and it's as old as the garden. Ironically, our trivial pursuit of self Our trivial pursuit of self is not found in ourself, but in the one who made the self, God, Jesus. That's completely backwards from the world tells us. And if we're honest, like all of us can get swept up in that lie in our day-to-day lives, right? Now, if, if humility is what has been lost and it's what needs to be restored, how do we get it back though? What's a way that we can actually play a part in, 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 in bringing about humble posture? That proper pros- perspective that pride has taken from us. You know, and, and before I answer that, I, I do need to make clear though. It is God who seeks us out. And it is Him who draws us near. And it is Him that works His power in us. But it's not without giving us a choice and it's not without giving us a part to play. That's what's beautiful about it. That's, that's always been the plan as well. God wants to work in us, but he also wants to work with us. And that's, that's why Paul actually feels the need at all to urge any Christians toward anything. Because God actually wants to be chosen back in the way that we live our lives. Isn't that incredible? Isn't, and it blows my mind that God, usually the way that we think about humility is we are humble towards the people that we can only see a, a logic in being humble. Like, oh, well, they have more money than me or they, they have more power or they're, they're the king of a country or something like that. It makes sense to be humble towards people like that. But God has put himself in a position where he can be chosen or not chosen back by us and by the way that we live. And that boggles my mind because it's like, how can God, being God, be humble? Yet he is. Isn't that incredible? That should tell us something already about how we should approach our lives, right? Since the beginning, God has wanted to partner with us in ruling the earth, and, and he still wants to, right? 
this is where the importance of that calling comes into play. I want to, I want to read one last quote from, from Andrew Murray in relation to humility. He says, it needs to be made clear that it is not sin that humbles, but grace. It is the soul occupied with God in his wonderful glory as creator and redeemer that will truly take the lowest place before him. It's only when we're caught up in the goodness and the gloriousness of God on a daily basis that we'll truly start to become the people he would have us to be, humble and Christ-like. This is why Paul spent three chapters up to this point laying out God's master plan because he wants to ravish us with it. He wants us to blow us away, sweep us away with, with God's love and his humility and calling for our lives. And it's, it's, it's a calling so glorious that when we grasp it as much as we are able to, when we actually practice bringing it before our minds and our hearts on a daily basis as a discipline, we could not help but be compelled to be the kind of people he would have us to be. But we still must give our attention to it. The first key to spiritual maturity is humility. But if God doesn't have our attention, we will not have humility and therefore be incapable of the maturity we would have. So, does God have our attention? Or does something else? Someone else? Someone once said, I, I can't remember who it was, but they said, in the end, the summation of our lives amounts to what we have given our attention to. Our whole life can be amounted to what we have practiced giving our attention to. And for us being Christians, it, it's no different. What we give our attention to. Our character is going to be a reflection of the calling that we give our attention to. And guess what? There's more than one calling that exists in this life. And I think there's two primary, primary callings. There's the calling of the, the deceptive calling of the serpent in the, in the garden to Eve. And then there's that calling of companionship from God after the fall. Where he simply says to Adam, where are you? Where are we? That's a question I want us to be able to ask ourselves. Being so reminded, where are we? Disciplined attention to God and the goodness of his calling will lead to the humility that, Christian, uh, that makes Christian character possible. Excuse me. We got to keep that in mind as we move forward here. Because everything that Paul will urge us toward in the chapter, it will be impossible if we don't allow Jesus to make us into humble people on the inside. We won't be gentle. We won't be patient. We won't be loving. We won't be united despite our differences. Amen? Amen. Amen. I, you know, I just, I wanted to spend a large portion on that. I know we've only covered about two or three verses. But like I said, I just wanted to prepare our hearts a little bit. You know, like, like I, I just wanted to speak to our hearts a little bit before I spoke to our heads. But um, anyways, moving on. Our next section of the, of the chapter 
it seems like a bit of a, at least to me, a, a clunky inclusion in Paul's train of thought, at least at first reading. But I, I hope that I can make it clear as we go because I think it's actually very important to God's design for growing us up into Christian maturity, especially through the church community. So let's, let's read in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Now to each one of us was given this grace, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, Ascending on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Now, he ascended, what does that mean? Except that he who also descended to the regions of the earth. The one who descended himself is also the one who ascended above all the heavens in order that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he gave, he himself gave some as apostles, in some as prophets, in some as evangelists, in some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to being a mature man, to a measure of the maturity, the fullness of Christ. That's a wordy verse, isn't it? My goodness. Let's untangle this a bit. Verse 7, Paul says, to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does this mean? Well, first, whatever it is that he's talking about, part of it relates to each one of us being distributed with something. And the subject word here is grace. He's talking about grace, right? So we kind of have to define that first. The Greek word for grace is charis, and I know I don't have a slide up here, but it's C-H-A-R-I-S, and it's the same word that we get our English word charity from, and interestingly enough, charisma as well. Now, in in most of our, our Christian circles, you've probably heard grace defined as God's unmerited favor, right, or unearned favor, specifically as it relates to are being saved from our sins. For instance, we, we've, we have the, the treasured passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, it is by grace that you have been saved. And look, this is absolutely true, but it's not exactly the complete picture of how grace is used all throughout the scriptures, okay? And, and I, I think that one of my favorite authors has a, a useful definition for us here. Uh, Dallas Willard says, his definition of grace, he says, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace is not just about forgiveness. If we had never sinned, we would still need grace. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is what we live by and the human system won't work without it. I love that definition of grace because it it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Especially what we've talked about so far, like God doesn't just want to save us and be like, okay, you're, you're good. Like he wants to do something more in us. And grace is the way that God goes about that. 
Grace is God's activity in our lives that flows from that unmerited favor he has for us. So grace has everything to do with our being saved, but it also has to do with God bringing glory to himself through the way that he, through the way that we live, right? In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, we, we, we already covered this in our Ephesians class, but it, it says an awesome verse that I love. It says, God wants to use the church to display his many-colored wisdom to the world or many-varietied wisdom. Grace is how God gifts us spiritually in order to bring him glory, very simply. And I, I, I love this. I'm going to give us a little example here. I love this, this saying. It's, it's just, I think it's so powerful. God wants to make us, in his grace, he wants to make us safe, but he also wants to make us sound. Safe and sound. And I mean sound in the way that the scriptures talk about sound doctrine, right? Good doctrine. And, and to give us a little example here, you know, we live in a, 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 a coastal, you know, kind of city, right? Imagine that there is a ship whose motor, it's out to sea, it's motor, it's sails, whatever it is, it's in disrepair right? So someone goes out and they bring it safely into harbor. That ship is safe, but it is not sound. It'll only be sound when somebody comes on and they repair it. And that's what we're talking about here tonight. That our, our calling is, 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 is God's grace towards us, not just to make us safe, but to make us sound, to make us a new creation. And we can see from the first page of the Bible that this has always been God's plan. He wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to partner with us to rule the earth. He gifts us so that we can be gifts to others. That's the whole point of grace. That's the way that it's used here and in many passages. This is what Paul's getting at here. And, and actually, if this is helpful for us as well, we find very similar language used here in this passage in Ephesians 4 as used in the spiritual gift passages like Romans chapter 12, right? And um, 1 Corinthians 12 as well. It talks about serving or leadership or speaking or giving even, right? That's the kind of grace it's talking about here. And you, you can read and check those out later. I definitely encourage that. So whatever... What, what should be on our minds as we read this passage is the many variety of gifts that God gives to his church through his grace for the purpose of displaying his, his glory to the world through his church, right? That's, that's what it means here when he's, when he's talking about grace. So the apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers fall under this category as well. It's just, it, it, it's another... It's another passage that could be grouped in with those other passages in Romans 12 and, uh, and 1 Corinthians 12, okay? Paul says that these categories of people within the church, they have a unique gifting. And their unique gifting and their unique role is that they equip the rest of the church for using their own giftings, right? Let's take a closer look at these categories here in verse 11. We'll define them, and then we'll, we'll see exactly how they um, go about equipping the church. So, first up, the apostles and the prophets. So, what's cool is, 
these two are actually listed together twice before. Earlier in chapter 2 and earlier in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Chapter 2 verse 20, Paul says the household of God, the church, the worldwide church that's now unified, Jews and Gentiles, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Chapter 3 verse 5 says that the mystery of God's unifying plan of salvation has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So twice before this, this passage in chapter 4, oh, excuse me, twice before this passage in chapter 4, these two categories, they've been listed together. Let, let me define them real, real quickly. Um, and, and I don't have a whole lot of time to go too deeply into, uh, or, or to go as deep as we could go into this. Um, there's a lot of, kind of an interesting treasure hunt we could go on through the scriptures in regards to, you know, what exactly is an apostle specifically. Um, but, you know, maybe if you're interested in that, you know, we can, we can talk about it afterwards. But first, let, let, let's, let's define the prophets, right? The, the prophets refers to the prophets of the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament writings that we have, um, which, which made up the New Testament author's Bible in their day, that's what it's, that's what it's talking about. Th- those, those are the prophets there, okay? The apostles are a group of people, including the original 12, who have been with Jesus in the flesh and have been given a special revelation in charge from him. You can go throughout the scriptures. That's, that's kind of the, the, the treasure hunt or rabbit chase, I guess you could go down. But there, there's, there's, there seems to be a clear definition of what an apostle is according to the scriptures. And it seems to be something very specific. And the two criteria that, that I'm aware of is that they had to have been with Jesus in the flesh and been given a special charge by him. Okay? Now, some people argue today that apostles and prophets are a category that still exists today. Now, as of now, I'm, I'm still setting these things out, but as of now, I believe that especially with, with what we talked about before, this is a category of people that, as verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20 said, I think the function was primarily one for the foundation of the early church. And I think they played unique roles in the starting of the early church. Now, now I'm, I'm open, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good material out there, a lot of good ideas, and people have done biblical research. I'm, I'm still studying those things myself, but um, for our purposes today, I, I think that that is, is the category that those two fall under. I don't necessarily think that they exist in the same way as they existed when Paul was speaking about them here to the Ephesians. Um, up next is the evangelist or the evangelizers. Uh, very simply, proclaimers of the gospel. This is where we get our, uh, the word gospel, euangelion, and the way it's, it's, it's uh, translated as evangel, evan- evangelicalism. Um, the whole idea is, is proclaiming the gospel. And so these, these are people who are uniquely gifted in a certain way for going out and bringing other people in. Missionaries, if you will, both foreign and domestic. You know, you don't necessarily have to go to Africa or the Caribbean to be a missionary. You can be a missionary, you know, in plantation or, you know, something like that with, yeah, that's a weird name, isn't it? Um, Anyway, um, so lastly, the shepherds and teachers. The shepherds and teachers, so 
in the original reading of the Greek, this is most likely one category, shepherds and teachers. They're together. It's not just shepherds and then teachers or something else. Uh, it's most likely one, one category here. And this refers to those who have been gifted and charged with the teaching of the people good doctrine and guiding them in how to live their day-to-day lives as God's called out people. Essentially, they're, they're charged with the health of the church. So, all that being said, defining all those things, what exactly are these categories of people supposed to be equipping us with? Let's read verse 12. It says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're all ministers, by the way. All of us, okay? I don't got time to go into that, but that, that's an important thing to pick up here. Apparently, every Christian is supposed to be doing the work of ministry. And that's awesome. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. One version, the NLT version, translates verse 14 as saying, uh, lies so clever that they seem like the truth. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what's cool? This scripture speaks to why nights like tonight are so important. It's so, so awesome for the church. They're important not just in the, the, the corporate church and its health at large, but, but also in us individually, right? The shepherds and teachers on the foundation of the apostles and prophets equip the people the evangelists have brought in. And how do they do this? By communicating God's truth in ways consistent with God's character and preparing other people to do so. What's another way to say that? Speaking the truth in love. That's, that's literally what's set up. He, he, he talks about being immature and children tossed back and forth by the world and those lies that, sound so, that are so clever they seem like the truth. What's the antidote? Speaking truth in love. You know, this is so important because the way the world def- defines what love is and what truth is, they make them enemies of each other instead of partners, right? Like, like in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, there's that passage where it says, love rejoices with the truth. But the way that the world says, the, the, the way the world defines truth is whatever feels right. It's personal now. It's not something that can simply just, you know, be objective and observed by reality. It's personal and it's by what you feel, right? And so love, if you get truth wrong, you get everything else wrong, right? 
And so love, therefore, it isn't a loyal and a steadfast goodwill for others. It's feeling-based too. It's transactional, right? You know, in, in addition to, to all the things we have spoken about tonight, if we are to be, to, to grow and mature as Jesus wills, then we must cherish times like tonight. We got to value them. Where on a Thursday night, we could be doing anything else. And, and honestly, we could be perfectly within our rights. It's not a sin to not, to not come, you know, unless you're in sin. And you've got a sinful heart, right? But, but, like, but, but um, like, like, it's awesome that you guys are here because you want to be here. And this is so important where we can come on a Thursday night and we can receive truth before we go back into a world of lies. And here, Paul has finally set the stage for us for that age-old battle for our souls. God's truth and Satan's lies. If we remember from earlier, those are the two callings to which we're given the choice of which one we'll give our attention to. God calls us to his truth. Satan calls us to define our own truth. To decide for ourselves what is good, what's not good. Speak your truth, as it said today, right? This is a deceptive idea from Satan, and he's led the whole world astray. And we also will be led astray if we are not careful. If we are not careful and disciplined about how and when we give our attention to God and his calling for our lives. And, and if we understand what that calling actually is, to not just be safe, whatever that means, but to be sound, right? So really what I want to do for us closing tonight, I just want to, with everything that we've talked about so far, I want to read 17 through 32. And I want you to be thinking about that and thinking about your life and thinking about the things you've experienced in the world. And then I'll just have some closing thoughts for us, okay? Let me get some water real quick. Read with me here. And actually, I have an idea. Originally, I was planning to have two volunteers to read. And this isn't as big as I thought it would be when we switched things up. Can I have two volunteers? There's one. I knew a lot of would do. <laughs> let's, let's, let's have you. What's your name? Camille? Okay, awesome. Nice to meet you. So, uh, Camille, let's have you read... 17 through 24, and then Alana, we're going to have you 25, 32. Amen. Thank you guys for reading that. I, I want you guys, guys, just take a minute and just kind of, just kind of let that wash over you for a bit. Just, just, just think about what was read. You know, in closing, I'll remind us of what I said earlier. Our calling, what we're called to, every single one of us, is to be with Jesus, to be like him. That's our calling. That's what he wants more than anything. That was the original plan, right? Giving our attention to Jesus in a disciplined way 
and his calling, it'll produce humility in us if we do it the right way, with the right heart. It'll prepare us to receive the knowledge of the truth, right? Because if our hearts are hard and they haven't been humbled, truth will just bounce off of us and lies will just walk right in. We have to give our attention to God and we have to give our attention to his calling for our lives. And only then will will we know the truth that Jesus said will set us free. Free from the self. The ultimate idol that the world would have us worship. And so I say all this to say, and I'm, you know, trying to put myself in in, in y'all's place, what may be going through through your head and, and, and what I'm thinking about as I was preparing this. Like we all know the world we live in and we know the ways that we play a part in the world we live in that maybe we shouldn't. That maybe isn't the most helpful for us. And that's, 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 that's really what I want to do for us tonight. It's like just consider, just consider what are the ways that maybe I am a friend to the world when I shouldn't be. What ways has that formed my character in ways that I may not know of? And guess what? You know what's funny about that is you may not know of it, but I guess the, I, I guarantee the people closest to you know about it. So the next time we're pulled towards something that is considered normal in the world, the next time we're pulled towards something love something, enjoy something that the world thinks is good and praiseworthy, simply let's test it. Let's test it by God's word. Ask yourself this. In, in those situations, right, case-by-case case basis, ask yourself this. Does this cater more to what I want or to what God says is worthy? You're, we're only going to know that if we're consistently washing our wants in his word. That's the only way to know it. The, 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 the truth is in the scriptures. The truth is in the scriptures spoken and lived in community like this. That's the only way we're going to know. And when we do that, we won't walk as we used to. Our hearts will be more humble than their heart. We will not define ourselves in the same way the world does, our, our gender, our, our sexuality, whatever it is in this day and age. We'll be honest always. Anger won't have a hold on our lives. We'll work hard and we'll speak well of other people. We'll bring joy to God's spirit and not grief. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's all I got for you guys tonight. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you.